Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. I'm sure glad you all have finally learned that verse. Well, before we get started, we need to make sure that we're in fellowship. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary and then uh, get our focus and concentration together so we can uh, get into the lesson tonight. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful that we have such a great salvation as the writer of Hebrews describes, not only that referring to that which was accomplished on the cross, but that which is the result of what was accomplished on the cross and which will be brought into effect as time marches on and as the Lord Jesus Christ returns, establishes his kingdom, and on into eternity. Father, as we study about the new covenant, about the implications of the new covenant for our uh, spiritual life today, the fact that it is a future covenant with Israel is significant, but its relationship to the present high priestly ministry of Jesus Christ at the cross is where it has application to us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, members of his body. Fathers, we continue our study on the new covenant. We pray that you help us to think through uh, so many different facets of this uh, magnificent covenant, how it relates not only to Israel but to us, and how it relates to future things in the different ways in which you revealed it in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea, other Old Testament passages. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, as Jack noted, it's been since January 3rd since we had a Bible class on Hebrews. I want you all to tell me what was the last thing I said. Amen. <laughs> Somebody has got the, took a nap this afternoon. You're, you're almost as, as a, much of a smart aleck as Norm Geisler. Some of you may not know who Norm Geisler is. Uh, Dr. Geisler is probably one of the foremost apologists, apologists. Uh, today he's got multiple degrees, multiple doctorates. He's written, I don't know, dozens and dozens of books. He's just a writing machine. But the, one of the interesting things is to get to know Dr. Geisler personally, because he grew up in a home where learning was not uh, prized, learning was not emphasized, and he did not know how to read until he was a senior in high school. Now he has a couple of doctorates, and of course he's written. He, he just writes and writes and writes and writes. And when he was a, and it was not discovered that he couldn't read until he was in an English class and they were uh, given the assignment they had had to read A Tale of Two Cities. And so the 
uh, teacher, thinking that there was something amiss with this young Norman Geisler, said, well, Norman, how does the book end? How does the story end? And he looks at the teacher and said, with a period. <laughs> so while he was down at the principal's office, they uh, <clears throat> decided that he needed to have some remedial courses and learn how to read. So y'all are just as quick and smart alecky saying, well, you ended with amen. I ended by saying it's going to be a month before we're back here again. So when we come back, we're probably going to have to review everything so you can, we can get back where we were. So we won't review everything in as much detail, but we will hit the high points and begin to uh, move on. Our passage is in Hebrews chapter 8. You don't need to turn there. We're not going to be there long other than just the first two or three slides to orient us. In verses 6 through 8, we're introduced to the major passage in the the New Testament on the New Covenant. And the writer of Hebrews says, But now he, that is Jesus Christ, through his ascension and session at the right hand of the Father, has obtained a more excellent ministry, that is, more excellent in comparison to the high priestly ministry of the Aaronic high priest in the Old Testament. He has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant. So it connects his high priestly ministry to the new covenant in contrast to the Aaronic high high priesthood in the Old Testament and its connection to the Mosaic covenant. Now, in his high priestly ministry today, Jesus Christ functions as our high priest And he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And we have all these passages we've seen from Hebrews chapter 4 through 5 and into 7, dealing with his intercessory ministry as uh, a major aspect of his uh, priesthood, his high priesthood for the church. And that's connected to this new covenant. So that's one way in which the church participates in the blessing of the new covenant, and it is by virtue of our relationship to Jesus Christ. I pointed out last time that there are, within what is known as dispensationalism, there are four views on how the church relates to the new covenant, four different understandings. The fourth is the view of progressive dispensationalists. They're neither progressive nor dispensational in my opinion, but we'll be a little gracious and at least... uh, give a measure of credence to their pious fraud. So in Hebrews 8.6, Jesus has a more excellent ministry in his high priesthood because it's connected to a superior covenant which is enacted on better promises. So priesthood, covenant, promises are all linked together in that verse. Verse 7, for if that covenant, notice that's in italics in your, uh, in your Bible, If that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. His argument has been that the Mosaic covenant was uh, unable to do what uh, needed to be done in terms of salvation. It had a limited priesthood, limited uh, application for salvation. And so his argument is that if that first covenant had been faultless, and it wasn't, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. And this is really his whole argument. He's going to quote these next six or seven verses only to establish the fact that because it's called a new covenant in verse 8, 
that necessarily implies that the older covenant had to be uh, replaced and was always understood to be temporary and not permanent. So in verse 8 he says, For finding fault with them, that is, with the older covenant, uh, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house and with the house of Judah. And that is the opening of Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, four verses that are quoted uh, directly into Hebrews chapter 8. But, and that's another issue we'll get to later on. The point that he is making simply draws on the fact that it's called a new covenant. He doesn't, he's not getting into any of the details. And that's important because I think because it helps us understand how Peter is applying another new covenant passage, Joel 2, to the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2. And most of you were here last week, week before when Arnold was here, and Arnold ta- taught on the fact that the, the Jews had four different ways of interpreting Old Testament uh, passages. And that as they interpreted these passages, sometimes they took a literal prophecy and applied it literally. Micah 5.2, Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. Or they took a literal historical event out of Egypt. I called my children, referring to the Exodus. And that was applied typologically to Jesus coming out of Egypt after they had escaped from Herod. The third view was the view that uh, called literal historical event. Uh, where there are maybe only one point of similarity that is connected to a an event. And in Matthew chapter 2, there's a quote from, um, from Jeremiah dealing with the uh, women, the mothers of Judah, weeping over their children. And so this is applied simply to the weeping of the mothers of Judah over the loss, the death of their children in in Matthew chapter 2. And that's the same kind of thing that you have in Acts 2. Now, this may seem a little uh, abstruse and like a minor point for some of you. I'll connect these dots, but it's very important to understand how the writers of the New Testament use the Old Testament. Because when you get a passage such as the passage related to um, Jesus in Hosea 11.1 out of Egypt I called my son, which when you exegete it in context, in Hosea, I think that's Hosea 11.1, when you exegete that in context, you would never ever think from the context of Hosea 11 that that applies to the Messiah. But Matthew comes along and applies it and that's the correct word to use. He applies it typologically uh, to the Messiah. And there, is a, there was a term that was used by the rabbis for this type of interpretation. And I don't remember what it is off the top of my head right now. But that's in contrast to another form of interpretation that was used in the first century called Pesher interpretation. And Pesher is spelled P-E-S-H-E-R. And if you want a fairly succinct understanding of what Pesher interpretation is, just uh, Google it, look it up on Wikipedia, and the article on Wikipedia is, is pretty accurate. In Pesher interpretation, this became popular in the intertestamental period. 
uh, in rabbinical literature, they allegorized or spiritualized prophecy. Now, there's a difference between applying a passage typologically to an event and spiritualizing or allegorizing it. And one of the differences is that in applying it typologically, you're not denying the original historical, grammatical, exegetical uh, meaning of the passage. But in spiritual or allegorizing, you say, well, that, that's the, the literal historical grammatical meaning is not, rele- not important spiritually. What's important is the spiritualized or allegorized sense, and, and it may have nothing whatsoever to do with the literal historical grammatical sense of the passage. It's just, I guess the best term is rabbinical imagination. Now, the reason I have gone through this little detour for you is because I recently learned from a very good source that, excellent source, by the way, um, that in the New Testament department at Dallas Theological Seminary, to a man, the Old Testament faculty holds to uh, the validity of Pesher hermeneutics. This is why I go into some detail like this for you, because It's so easy for people to get misled. All of us operate at certain levels in our life with basing our trust on other people's opinions or on some sort of historical um, tradition with certain, uh, I shouldn't say this, but certain political parties or certain uh, seminaries and certain churches that because they have a history or track record of being one way that we continue to trust them and we don't really understand a lot of the politics, a lot of the changes, a lot of these changes are the result of of, um, generational changes as younger leadership takes over in key positions, policies change, procedures change, outlook changes, and... You know, I've been accused of bashing Dallas at times. I just, all I'm trying to do is recognize that that there's a tremendous misunderstanding about Dallas based on what it was. But it no longer is a school that teaches the theology of Chafer, Walvert, and Ryrie. It just doesn't. It's not present in the Old Testament department. It's not present in the New Testament department. And it's not present in the theology department. And the only department that's still solid is the Bible Exposition Department, and there are very good men in the Bible Exposition Department. A number of them uh, are, are excellent. But uh, it is this is one reason that I am so concerned personally about the establishment of Chafer Seminary, because if we want to have quality individuals, quality pastors, trained pastors, the only way we're going to get it now is one of two ways. Number one is to have them go to a well-qualified seminary with qualified professors who are teaching within the uh, historical, historically received tradition, doctrinal tradition that we come from, which we identify basically as Schofieldian, Chaferian, Walberg, Dallas Seminary-type tradition going back into the 19th century and beyond. And in our history of doctrine class on Monday night, we're going to see how we really do fit in much of what we believe fits within a historical flow that goes all the way back to the times when these various areas of theology were first crystallized and articulated. 
And so we're not just some sort of aberration or something that just sort of invented, popped up on the scene uh, maybe 100 years ago or 150 years ago. But it is the natural progression of understanding of doctrine from, uh, from the second century all the way up, all the way up to the present. And yet what happens and has happened, and when I studied under Dr. Hannah when I was in both THM and later doctoral studies, he used to say the life of a seminary historically, and he had spent a lot of time studying the history of not only Dallas but other seminaries, is about 75 years. And it's that third generation that loses the vision of the first generation. And that's really where we are today. The first generation was Chafer. The, second gener- the first generation he trained was Walverd, Ryrie, Theme, Pentecost, that generation. And that generation passed on a vision to the baby boomer generation that didn't connect the dots. And my generation failed to connect the dots. And part of the things that, that I've said for years, one of the trends of the baby boomer generation, and I saw this a lot when I was at seminary, is an anti-authoritarian uh, way of thinking. And that manifested itself culturally in anti-establishment, the hippies, anti-Vietnam. Uh, we're seeing that come home to roost at a, at a national political Level, But within the Christian tradition, there are obviously limited ways in which people could express their rebellion against authority. And one of the ways they did it was to, uh, within the framework of so-called scholarship, overthrow the teaching of the fathers of their tradition, which is what has happened today in not only schools like, not only Dallas, but it's happened at Talbot, which is, which was really a sister school to uh, to Dallas, and most of the faculty that taught at Talbot out in Southern California is a graduate school for Biola, which was the uh, Bible Institute of Los Angeles. That was an acronym. Uh, also, you had Western Conservative Baptist Theological Seminary up in Portland, which, you know, basically uh, died, or in terms of its tradition, it lost it in the around 1990, early 90s. It just made a major shift. Uh, there's major shifts happened at, at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. But uh, those were the major block seminaries in the 60s and 60s and 70s. And yet today, many, especially if, the, if you have a faculty member there that's under the age of 45, they're not teaching in the classroom the fundamental truths that were taught 40 years ago. And that is going to create an enormous vacuum. And the training for pastors is going to come either because you have well-grounded pastors with a vision in the pulpit who are training and mentoring young men who will take a class here, class there, just sort of a melting pot experience to get get their basic skills together because there's not one school to go to, or you will have a new school developed that will uh, embody these principles for the next 60 or 70 years until they go the way of all flesh. And that's where we are today, and, and it all boils down to interpretation. It's interpretation, interpretation, interpretation. That's the battlefield. We see it not only at the, at the doctrinal theological Bible study level, but you see it at the national level. How do we interpret the Constitution? How do we interpret law? How do we interpret the history of the nation? 
How do we interpret the vision of the founding fathers? And once you cut yourself loose from any form of absolute, where you have uh, strict guidelines on how you understand things, and in literal, grammatical, historical interpretation, you still have disagreements, but they're not at the level you do once you sort of slip your anchor to the meaning of words and their historical, grammatical context. Uh, in allegorical or spiritualized interpretation because anybody can come up with their own view of what they think these words mean and so everything, the boundaries start breaking down. Same thing happens when you interpret law. Nobody understands law in terms of an absolute objective sense anymore. And we don't live in a nation or in a world that believes in objective knowledge of, of anything anymore. It's just your opinion. It's even worse. It's how you feel about it. How you feel about it. How'd you feel about that? Who do you feel like voting for? It's all grounded in subjectivism and emotion and experience, and nobody wants to think through the issues anymore. If you listen to almost all of the candidates running for office today, you need to be asking yourself, what specifics are you telling me when you say you want change? What is, do you want to change? What do you want to keep? Why do you want to change it? What policies are you going to change here or change there? Uh, how are you going to improve the economy? Let's have some specific proposals. How are you going to improve the situation in Iraq? Let's hear some specific proposals. But you don't hear that. You hear just these wonderful-sounding uh, statements that have emotional overtones to them, and everybody just goes home and, oh, didn't he say wonderful things? Well, he didn't say anything. She didn't say anything. See, I'm going to be equal. Now you don't know who I'm talking about. Nobody said anything. Nobody has said anything. You don't get, you get very little content. And so nobody knows what they're voting for. They're just voting for an image. And that's what's happened in our culture and it was really boosted by film and then television in the 20th century. As Marshall McLuhan observed, the medium is the message. And the medium uh, really communicated a lot of things so that people became more concerned about how things appeared than reality. And that's exactly where we are in an existential world where we don't know how to get in touch with reality. All we have is, is appearances and feeling and since we have this little thing running around in our genetic system called the sin nature that is oriented to suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, and when you reject truth, all you're left with is lies, you're left with fantasy, you're left with fiction, and that's what people construct is their own fictionalized, fantasized account of reality, some, somehow they can make life feel good, feel comfortable, feel good about things. No matter what happens within 24 hours, we're going to spin it in our head so that it's really not that bad and it really isn't going to happen to us and it would just happen to somebody else. And we just build these castles in the air and, and then we move in. That's called psychosis. And we're just a nation of psychotics living in, 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 dream castles constructed out of thin air, and then some politician comes along or some theologian comes along or some pastor comes along and makes us feel all warm and fuzzy, and you just 
Everybody just quits thinking because that supports everybody's little fantasy castle. And somebody sent around today a link to a 60 Minutes show at, that appeared, I think, a couple of, a month or six weeks ago, having to do with a <clears throat> rather large church in Houston. I mean, it's down there where the um, where the Rockets used to play basketball, and in the blog following it, where people could listen to the video segments and comment on it. One of the most enlightening came from a Muslim woman who said, isn't it wonderful to listen to this pastor because what he says isn't offensive to Jews or Christians and Muslims. We can all come together and listen to what he says and nobody's offended. And that's really what we need is love. Anybody want a Coke? All we need is love. Yeah. So... Anyhow, it's important to get down to these these nitty-gritty issues on interpretation. And a lot of people don't want to do that in churches. Just tell me what it means. In fact, I was talking to a pastor the other day, and he's got three or four people in his church that give him a hard time every time he mentions anything about grammar or anything else. But see, you have to understand something about the details of these different views, these different positions, where they come from, why they're important, how the interpretation of of this passage is going to affect your interpretation of Acts 2. And Acts 2 and Acts 3 fit together in terms of a still a millennial kingdom offer to Israel. And in that those passages, there's references to David and David's throne. And you have amillennials, and progressive dispensationalists, this is why I say they're not progressive or dispensational, claim that on the basis of their hermeneutic, their interpretation, that Jesus is now sitting on David's throne in heaven. It's not a literal throne on on the earth. It's a heavenly throne. And that is going to change. It dominoes. Theology is like anything else. You start, it's, if the thinking of God is all integrated, and it's all internally consistent. It's up to us to try to understand him and what he has revealed. And when we start spinning the dials and changing the relationship of different things to one another, it changes other things. And it has all kinds of uh, ripple effects through the, your thought system, how you understand the spiritual life, how you understand the future, how you understand grace. These things all start to domino. And what I'm trying to do is at least give you enough information so you know, one, that, that maybe, maybe what I'm saying isn't something that's just based on an opinion or a knee-jerk reaction or uh, some sort of theological prejudice that I have, on the one hand. And on the other hand, enough tools so that you, when you read the Scripture and when you hear what other people say, and it's, you never know when you're going to be someplace, somewhere, and you're going to hear somebody say something, and it may even sound good at first. But then you think about it, and some of this stuff will come back to you as you think it through and avoid being uh, led astray. And that's part of the job of every pastor is to teach people to think so that they are not uh, led astray, so that they are not deceived by the false teachers, the wolves that Paul warned the, the Ephesian uh, pastors about, that there would be wolves in sheep's clothing that would come in 
uh, amongst the flock trying to destroy them. And so the pastor can't be everywhere. So you ha- a pastor has to teach these kinds of things. And there's some really interesting interconnections in all of this that some of which I'm just beginning to, you know, each time I go through something like this, I don't know who learns more, you or me, but I always learn more about um, what it is I believe and what I'm teaching, and you just get the overflow from that. So this passage is a direct quote from the Jeremiah 31 passage, and he only quotes it for one reason, to emphasize this word new, that because it's called a new covenant, it means the old was temporary. And he quotes four verses to do that. And that's the same methodology Peter has in Acts 2. He quotes that whole Joel 2 section, six or seven verses, only to emphasize the point that there's just a similarity between what the Holy Spirit did on the day of Pentecost and what the Holy Spirit is going to do on the day of the Lord. And so it's an application, but there's only just one small point of contact. Everything that happens in Joel, nothing that's mentioned in Joel 2 happens in Acts 2. Nothing that happened on the day of Pentecost is mentioned in Joel 2. So why does Peter say this is that? Because he's making a point of application. But he's also talking about what happens on the day of the Lord, which is a technical term for the final intense judgments at the end of the tribulation, immediately preceding and accompanying the return of Jesus Christ to the earth to defeat the enemies of Israel and the enemies of God and to establish his kingdom. And what happens when he establishes his kingdom? Well, as we're going to see as we go through these Old Testament passages, that's when he establishes the new covenant. And so these things are not just disconnected because, well, that's what Peter said in Acts, and this is over here in Jeremiah, and that's over there in Hebrews. They're all talking about things that happen at the same time in the future. And to properly connect all of these things together, you have to have a well-thought-out, rigorous system of of, uh, interpretation. So that's my little rant today about why all of this is important. You have to get into the details because the details are really important. And it's amazing today. Lazy minds don't want to know details. Just give me, you know, my fast food at the drive-thru window and I'll take it home and, and eat it. But don't make me sit here and learn how to cook, how to go to the grocery store, how to shop, or how to uh, make a roux. You just have to... I'll just go buy it somewhere. Okay. Backdrop for all this are the eight biblical covenants. You have the Gentile covenants that are all basically forms of the same covenant, but they have to, there has to be modifications because of sin. The original creation covenant replaced after the fall with the Adamic covenant, which is replaced after the flood with the Noahic covenant, which is still in effect. Three reasons you're glad the Noahic Covenant are in effect. Number one, because it authorizes capital punishment. Number two, because you can go eat a prime rib. And number three, because you know that God's not going to destroy the earth by water again. And that's what you're reminded of, all three, when you see a rainbow. Then you have your Jewish covenants. The Abrahamic Covenant's the foundation covenant. The three elements are land, seed, and blessing. 
and that lays the backdrop for understanding the rest of history. Uh, there's a land covenant with Israel that gives Israel the right to the land, but they don't have the right to live in it and enjoy it unless they're in right relationship to God. That's the condition that's embedded within the unconditional covenant. The land is permanently theirs, but they can't live in the house unless they're a good tenant. They can't live on the land unless they're a good tenant. They have certain rules, and if they break the rules, they will be removed from the land, but God promises to bring them back. That's the new covenant issue is the return to the land. Then you have the Davidic covenant, which speaks of the ultimate ruler. They can't rule themselves. No man can because of sin. So God is going to give them the right kind of ruler who is a righteous ruler. And then because a righteous ruler has a hard time dealing with unrighteous people, God is going to bring into effect the new covenant, which is going to give the people a new heart. And so then both the ruler and the people will be righteous, and there will be a righteous kingdom. So God is the one who is going to ultimately have to do all of the work because fallen man can't. So the Abrahamic covenant focuses on the land covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant, and then the uh, Davidic covenant promises an eternal throne, an eternal kingdom, the eternal kingdom, and uh, eternal house. And this is the basis for... Jesus Christ being the, uh, the son of David, why he's the son of David, that he will establish a kingdom, he will rule on the throne of David. It's a literal earthly throne, just as David's throne was. Now, how and when do all these come into final effect? The covenants are all made early, but they don't come into effect. They aren't established until the second coming of Christ. So we have our timeline here. The promises are made in the Old Testament. God makes these promises to individuals and to the nation in the form of the covenants. And in the future, the promises will be fulfilled. They are not fulfilled yet. They are not in the progress of being fulfilled, which is where you get the term progressive in progressive dispensationalism, that they're progressively coming into effect. They're not, they, they, they've been, the covenants have been, have been given. The basis for the new covenant has been established at the cross, but there's no, there's no inauguration of the covenant until Jesus returns. Now here's our timeline. We have on the left the Old Testament dispensation, the cross, the church age, and then the future millennial reign of Jesus Christ. The Abrahamic covenant is given at the beginning of the dispensation of Israel, the age of Israel in the Old Testament, the beginning of the dispensation of patriarchs. And out of the Abrahamic covenant, you have the land covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant. Now, the land covenant isn't fulfilled until the Jews are brought back as a regenerate people and put in the land, which occurs at the second coming. The Davidic covenant is fulfilled when Jesus Christ returns to be and is welcomed as Israel's, by Israel as Israel's Messiah. And the new covenant is 
put into effect at that time, and I have the dashed line there because the relationship of the church is to the is, is by application in reference to our position in Christ. It's not that we are a direct participant in the covenant. So last time I covered about five things. This key scripture, we're going through more of these tonight. The persons involved in the covenant, God the Father is part of the first part. The house of Judah and the house of Israel is part of the second part. And one of the passages we're going to get into is going to get into a key passage that you will run into the next time one of those young men in the white shirt and the little black tie comes and knocks on your door. And he's going to try to justify uh, the existence of uh, the Mormons and their ancient heritage in the North American continent and Jews being over here on the basis of this passage in Ezekiel. And if you don't aren't familiar with this obscure little passage in, in Ezekiel, then you sit there and you go, hmm, should have been listening to Bible class. See, it's important because it provides for the, the regeneration of the nation Israel. And I'm clarifying my thinking here. This is a national regeneration. There's a difference between national and individual regeneration. Because national regeneration has to do with the whole nation being back in the land and being given a new heart. But most of those who are given the new heart at the second coming are already believers. Like the 144,000. They're already believers. 144,000 are saved at the beginning of the tribulation. They survived the whole tribulation because they have the seal of God on them. So they're already believers, and they're all, which means they're already regenerate, so that when we get into these passages, it's very important to think through that what this means when God says, using a plural you, I will give you a, a new heart, that this isn't talking about the fact that they were all unbelievers and then suddenly Jesus is going to come back, snap his fingers, and they're going to be given a new heart and now be positive. They've got to be positive before he comes back. They've got to, they're going to be believers before he comes back. They're going to be believers before he gives them a new heart. Because giving them a new heart is not the same as getting regenerated today. And then there are ten provisions. Did I go through those ten provisions last time? I was going to do that this time. I skipped them last time. Okay. They were in my notes at the first. That's why I was confused. Uh, there's ten provisions which reinforce this unique state of salvation and the unique covenant uh, with Israel in the millennial kingdom. So what are those ten provisions? Let me go through those now. This is a summary of what you find in primarily Jeremiah, but also some of the uh, other passages such as Ezekiel 36, Joel 2, some of those passages that are listed. I'm going to leave that up on the screen so people can write down all those references. And then we'll just talk about these ten points. First point, the covenant was made with the nation of Israel. It's not made with the church. There's no place where the covenant is stated to be made with anybody other than the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In the Ezekiel passage, it talks about, now I'm giving away the Mormon thing, it talks about two sticks. Two sticks. See, the Mormons will say one stick's Ephraim, and they came over here, and they became the tribe of uh, uh, Lehi, or whatever they called it. And the other stick is Judah. 
But it's talking about the stick of Ephraim is the northern kingdom, the stick of Judah is the southern kingdom, and God's going to bring them back together in the new covenant and reunify the nation. So um, it's not with the church. It's always stated to be with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Second point, the covenant is contrasted to the Mosaic covenant. The Mosaic covenant is temporary. The new covenant is permanent. The old covenant they broke. The new covenant they won't break. So the covenant is in contrast to the Mosaic covenant, which depended on the obedience of Israel for its fulfillment. Jeremiah 31, 32. Scripture on the first point, Jeremiah 31, uh, 31 and Jeremiah 50, verses 4 through 5. Jeremiah 50, verses 4 through 5. Second point, Jeremiah 31, uh, 32. Third point, the major portion of the covenant. I mean, I'm going to rewrite that. The covenant is fulfilled after the tribulation. The covenant is fulfilled after the tribulation. This is when it goes into effect, is after the tribulation. Jesus Christ is going to, and we're going to work through the chronology on this. I still have a couple of points to clarify in my own thinking. But Jesus Christ returns, and then he is going to defeat the armies of the Antichrist, the false prophet, and establish his kingdom. And then you have the establishment of the covenant when they receive the, are given the Holy Spirit. So the covenant is fulfilled after the great tribulation. This is in Jeremiah chapter 30, uh, verse 7. Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7. Fourth point, the new covenant will take place, will take the place of the Mosaic covenant and will be written in their hearts, which are currently identified as hearts of stone, but they will be given hearts of flesh. And that's Jeremiah 31, 33. Jeremiah 31, 33. Fifth point, the new covenant will feature great spiritual blessings for the people of Israel. The new covenant will feature great spiritual blessings for the people of Israel. All the blessings that God's promised in the past will finally come true and be fulfilled for Israel because these blessings have been conditioned on their spiritual capacity to, uh, to be able to handle them. So they'll get all, the, all of the blessings. That's Ezekiel 36, 26 to 30. Very important passage that we're going to have to... Uh, look at not only in terms of those four central verses, but the context of Ezekiel 36. Because remember, Ezekiel 36 talks about the New Covenant, Ezekiel 37, and then we start getting into the dry bones passage and uh, God rebuilding the nation under the imagery of collecting the, the bones. And then you get into Ezekiel 38 and 39 with the Gog and Magog revolution and then Ezekiel 40 and following dealing with the uh, uh, Millennial Temple. So that's, that's that context there which places the New Covenant in the... Uh, eschatological or future context at the end of the tribulation. Six, the new covenant will reveal the glory of God so that it will no longer be necessary to witness to others, uh, primarily in Israel, because God's glory is going to be on the earth. Jesus Christ is going to take up his residence in the temple 
in Jerusalem. You're going to have the Shekinah glory there. And so the, all the nations, Isaiah 2, all the nations are going to come to the mountain of God to worship. So there will be a full and complete testimony of God on the earth at that time. And yet people are still going to reject it. And what that shows is that the issue isn't how well you witness. The issue isn't how well you argue. It isn't how much evidence you present. If you raised people from the dead, people wouldn't listen to you because they have volition and they're either rejecting God or they're seeking God in the true sense of the word, being a seeker, positive volition. Seventh point, the new covenant will feature forgiveness, grace, and blessings for Israel. Jeremiah 31, 34. The new covenant will feature forgiveness, grace, and blessing for the nation. They will be forgiven and cleansed. Now, that's what we'll get into. Uh, a fascinating study. Because when you get into these passages in Ezekiel 36 and especially Ezekiel 37 where it talks about how God is going to cleanse them. He is going to sprinkle them with clean water and make their hearts clean. The typical response is that this is regeneration. But as I read the Scripture, they're already regenerate. And we have to understand what cleansing is in relation to, because that's a different word in the Levitical system, they can See, a priest can be sanctified, consecrated at the beginning of his reign, yet he can go wrong places, touch dead bodies, eat the wrong thing, and become unclean. So you can be unclean and positionally sanctified. So clean, cleanness is not necessarily equal to being justified or being position, what we'd call positionally sanctified. It may be. Jesus uses both words. He uses it to refer to the, the disciples in John 13. You are all clean, but not all of you. So you have positional cleanness and you have experiential cleanness. And I think that what's happening in Ezekiel 37, we'll see, is that as the nation regathers to be in a sanctified area now, it's going to be, be sanctified for the, for the temple and the presence of God, they will have to be experientially cleansed for the rebellion, for the rejection of the Messiah, for their idolatry of the past. So we'll get into that. Eighth point, in the New Covenant, God promises a permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit for every Jew. A permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit for every Jew. This is in Ezekiel 36:27 as well as in Joel 2:28 to 29. And the function of this indwelling is it's different from today. And it's different from the uh it's it's different from the filling of the spirit because the holy spirit is going to be in every Jew and and in a way that we don't understand or see today because it's not operational today communicating content to the individual so that they know God and know about God so that no one has to teach their neighbor. See, that's content. That's communication. So it's not just this kind of mystical, 
uh, inner light liver quiver kind of thing that Christians want to make it to be. But there's going to be some real content there because nobody's going to have to teach their neighbor. Everyone will know God. That's Jeremiah, uh, excuse me, Ezekiel 36:27, Joel 2:28-29. In the covenant, in the new covenant, God promises the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit for every every Jew. Ninth, there will be a universal knowledge of Yahweh among the people of Israel. Everyone will know. Everyone will know and will uh, have a knowledge of God. And that is in Jeremiah 31:34, A universal knowledge of Yahweh among the people of Israel. And tenth, the, covenant, the new covenant includes a promise that Israel will obey God and have a right attitude toward him forever. So it seems, and I'm, I haven't found a reason not to accept this, but it seems that there is going to be universal salvation among Jews in the millennial kingdom. Because you have these passages, every, all. Now, some of you may be saying, well, wait a minute, what about volition? Well, I think that what what I see is that through the trauma of what happens to Israel and to Jews in the tribulation, it becomes so clear and the testimony of the tribulation of history is so clear and the testimony of those who survive is so overpowering that just that, that you won't have any Jews reject Jesus as Messiah in the millennial kingdom. That's why you'll have universal salvation, not because God's reaching in and tweaking something and so they're all going to be saved. It's that the, the testimony is so overwhelming that none will reject it. So that, those are the ten points. First point, I'll review them real quick. The first point, the covenant was made with the nation Israel and the, na- the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Jeremiah 31, 31, Jeremiah 50, verses 4 through 5. The second point, the covenant is in contrast to the Mosaic covenant, which depended on the, on the obedience of Israel for its fulfillment. Jeremiah 31, 32. Mosaic Covenant was permanent, incomplete. New Covenant will be complete and eternal. Third point, the major portion of the Covenant will be fulfilled after the Great Tribulation. Uh, or just the Covenant itself, the whole Covenant is fulfilled after the Great Tribulation. Fourth point, the New Covenant will take the place of the Mosaic Covenant and will be written in their hearts, which have been hearts of stone, but now will be hearts of flesh, Jeremiah 31:33. Fifth point, the new covenant will feature tremendous spiritual blessings for the people of Israel, Ezekiel 36, 26 to 30. Sixth point, the new covenant will reveal the glory of God so that it will no longer be necessary to witness to others, Psalm 72, 19. Jeremiah 31:34, Psalm 72:19, Jeremiah 31:34. Uh, Seventh point: the new covenant will feature forgiveness, grace, and blessings. Jeremiah 31:34. Eighth point: in the covenant, God promised the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit for every Jew. Uh, Ezekiel 36:27, Joel 2:28 to 29.
Ninth point, there will be universal knowledge of Yahweh among the people of Israel, Jeremiah 31, 34. And 10, the covenant includes a promise that all Israel will obey God and have a right attitude toward him forever. Now, Romans 11.26 alludes to this. And in Romans 11.26 it says, And so, that is, in this manner, the hutos there indicates that you're, it's a, he, the writer is getting ready to explain how all Israel will be saved. And they will be saved when the, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. And some people have had trouble with this. Well, all Israel is going to be saved. Well, how do you know that? Don't some of them have volition? And in a nutshell, what happens is that in the tribulation, two-thirds of, of the Jews are going to be killed. Only a third are going to survive. The ones who survive in Israel, and that's the focal point here, the ones who survive in Israel, the ones who obey Jesus, uh, warning in Matthew 24 that when you see the abomination of desolation, you're going to head to the mountains and you're going to uh, hide in the mountains. And those who obey Jesus and go hide are probably either about to trust Christ as Messiah or they already have. So this is a believing remnant. And those who flee to Petra Basra area down in uh, southern Jordan and hide out there are the ones who are going to be delivered. That's the focal point there is on deliverance, not soteriological justification, but on the fact that they're all going to be delivered because they're the ones who obeyed Jesus and left. That's the same thing Jesus said in Matthew 24. Those who persevere to the end will be saved. And see, the problem that's entered into church history from the time of Augustine on is that people took the save there in Matthew 24 to be soteriological justification. And that's where you get the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, that if you persevere to the end of your life, then you'll be saved. That's not what it's talking about. Those who actually live to the end of the tribulation and survive and call upon the name of the Lord to come and deliver them will be delivered. At the end, and it's the, the, the physical deliverance nuance to save there, not spiritual uh, salvation justification. So that's a New Testament confirmation there in Romans, Romans eleven, eleven twenty six. Now the key issue for us, for the church, by us I mean the church, is the fact that Jesus refers to the cup and communion as the new covenant of my blood. In Luke 22.20, Paul quotes it in 1 Corinthians 11.25. Then 2 Corinthians 3.6, Paul says that we are ministers, servants of a new covenant. And Hebrews 9.15 then says, For this reason he, being Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant. So it seems from these passages on the surface that there is uh, uh, there's a relationship between the church and the new covenant, and that's been expressed several ways in the history of dispensational theology. One is that there are two new covenants, one with the church, one with Israel. Chafer taught that. I think Schofield had that. Um, several others have held that view. I don't think that's right. Uh, there's no place in the New Testament where it specifically states that the church is a covenant partner with uh, with the new covenant secondly the second view was that the church participates in the new covenant only by way of application this was Darby's view the new covenant with Israel hasn't begun uh, 
though it has been, it has been the, the sacrifice that establishes has taken place. I wrestle with the right verbiage to use here. The covenant is cut, to use the Old Testament term. The covenant's cut on the cross. The sacrifice that makes it possible is what happens on the cross. But it isn't in, in put into effect until the second coming. Uh, the third view was that the church has some part in the covenant. And this is a number of good dispensationalists have taken this view and they try to just attach our, our role soteriologically, just within the realm of soteriology. Uh, I would take, say the second view is probably the closest view. I'd modify it a little bit. The church participates because of our position in Christ. And then the fourth view is the progressive dispensational view that it was inaugurated on Pentecost at Pentecost, but it's not fully put into, into effect. Their key words you'll hear is already, not yet. We're already in the kingdom and not yet fully here. Or it's progressively coming into existence. And so it's just this gradual, gradual thing. And already not yet terminology really comes out of a theologian from Fuller Seminary in the 50s and early 60s named George Eldon Ladd. Ladd was also a post-tribulationist. But that terminology got picked up by a lot of uh, charismatics in the vineyard movement because if we're living in some form of the kingdom now, and the new covenant's actually already here, and the new covenant's going to have these expressions of the Holy Spirit and your your um, uh, old men dreaming dreams and your young men seeing visions and all of that in Joel two. Then we need to see that today, and that's what they were doing. And I remember pigeonholing one of the architects of progressive dispensationalism in the stacks of the library at Dallas Seminary in 1988 and saying, can you give me a clear theological exegetical reason why progressive dispensationalism isn't going to end up validating signs and wonders in this age because of Joel 2 and the way you handle Joel 2 and Acts 2? And the answer was basically, well, that's not really a legitimate application. But then there was a guy who came out of Moody who was a progressive dispensationalist, and he also argued that, that we ought to be seeing signs and wonders like that today. You can't escape the implication. If we're already in the kingdom and we already have some form of the new covenant, then we ought to be having these miraculous manifestations of the Holy Spirit that are described in Joel 2 and these other passages. But we're not. That's just similarity. That's why that understanding that this is that, this is what the prophet Joel said in Acts 2 is so important. How you understand that phrase, how that phrase is understood in relationship to the church age and the new covenant, just basically is a watershed interpretation. And it changes how you understand the church, how you understand the Holy Spirit, charismatic issues, all, all these things are related just just in one little phrase how you take that can mean so, can be taken so differently and then last time we looked at the first place that a covenant new covenant's really mentioned historically is Hosea 2:17 and 18 where Hosea said in that day I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field with the birds of the air with the creeping things of the ground 
bow and sword of battle I will shatter from the earth. That's millennial terminology, no more war. And so this is uh, the first indication of a future permanent covenant. And then we get into Isaiah and the various passages in Isaiah. And that's where we'll stop tonight. Isaiah 42, 49, uh, 55, 59, all of these passages add different elements. And they're very important because they connect the role of the Messiah. Isaiah 42 is in that the, the second part of Isaiah. First part of Isaiah 1 to 39 is all about future judgment on the nation, how God is going to punish Israel. The second part from 40 on is how God is going to redeem them. Liberal scholars in their wisdom say, oh, this two different themes had to be written by two different people. This is, you have this same kind of breakdown all the way through the prophets is there's a message of judgment and there's a message of grace. And so Isaiah 42 is the message of grace dealing with my servant, which is a technical title for the Messiah. And the Lord says, I will keep you and give you to be or as a covenant. Jesus himself is that covenant. He embodies the covenant with his work on the cross. And he will be a light to the Gentile. And that's quoted in a couple of passages in the New Testament related to uh, Jesus' work on the cross because it breaks down the barrier between the Jew and Gentile. So a lot to get into here. It's, it's going to be fun and interesting to work through these passages. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for such a great salvation that works out so many details. We want to think it's simple, and in one sense it is. All we have to do is believe in Jesus, trust in him as our Savior. But all of the details, all of the uh, dynamics, all of the uh, different facets of the sin problem and its impact in human history have to be ultimately resolved And the way it all comes together finally is a complete and total resolution of uh, what is arguably the most complex problem in all of human history. And, Father, we are so thankful that we have your word to help us understand this and that we can appreciate it and it just uh, manifests your glory, your omniscience, and your omnipotence in history. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.